So we are continuing this series called Less Me, where we talk about uh, the, the pride that is in us. Um, and, and it's really a problem. We, we're more prideful than I think we realize. So when we're preparing for a new series, the five pastors get together and, and we discuss the series. We ask tough questions of each other to see where the application might, be li- might lie for the members as well and what applications we see for ourselves. And as we were having that meeting, uh, one of the things we noted was you know what, I, th- I think I struggle, each of us were saying, I think I struggle with pride maybe more than I even realize that almost every day in almost every interaction with every other human being, my pride comes into play. We struggle with thinking more of ourselves than we ought and whatever is happening, um, we're thinking, well, what's in this for me? What is the benefit to me that will come out of this? Pride just comes up, comes up again and again and again. Now, we're covering this for what, six weeks in a row? Um, and what we, discovered was that, what we discovered is this, that the key to overcoming pride is not focusing on the humility in yourself and just trying to produce more and more humility inside of you and that will push out the pride. The problem is that we're already thinking too much about ourselves and to focus on humility makes it evaporate and it disappears too. You cannot get more humble by focusing on your humility. So, well, how do we get more humble? by focusing on Jesus' humility. And so that's really the focus of this series. We're not talking a ton about pride as much as we're talking about Jesus and his humility. And we're seeing examples of just how humble Jesus was. Today in particular, we're taking a look at at how Jesus um, surrounded himself with a humble crew. It matters who you surround yourself with, doesn't it? And this is where our pride sometimes comes into play. We surround ourselves with people that make us look good. People that can help us achieve our goals. And that's really just pride showing itself. Who did Jesus surround himself with? That's what we want to take a closer look at today. And remember, Jesus had the most important goal in the world of all time, He came to rescue us from our sins. He came to pay that full penalty to completely accomplish the Father's mission, and he only had three and a half years of active public ministry to do it. And when Jesus left, he knew that he was going to be entrusting this important ministry, this gospel ministry of sharing that good news about him with the world, and that there was going to be a core group of about 12 guys that would get this all started. How extraordinarily important that Jesus pick the right men. Which in our, our mind we're thinking, well, he needs to pick some people that are ultra accomplished, super bright, extremely influential. Wouldn't hurt if they had a ton of money too. And, and that's the kind of people that we would probably think of in our minds that Jesus would need to accomplish all of his goals and make sure that this happens well. But who did Jesus pick? Well, why don't we take a look? at the humble crew that Jesus chose. So to do that, we're going to be taking a look in Matthew's gospel. And we are taking a look at Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 18. But first of all, let me tell you a little bit about the, the, the context of this. It's, it's really just the, the lesson right after last week's lesson. So we heard about the humble place where Jesus did his ministry. I mean, if you're, you're thinking, okay, there's a limited amount of time. We need to make the biggest impact in the world. Where should the savior of the world be born? We might think, if it's going to be in the first century, Rome. That's the center of the Roman Empire. Certainly, that would be the place for Jesus 
to be born. Okay, yeah, but he's Jewish. Okay, so, well, how about Jerusalem? That would be the cultural, the political, the religious center of Israel. That's where Jesus should spend most of his time in ministry. Yet we heard last week that Jesus spent his time in ministry, the vast majority of it in Galilee, the northern part of Israel, the place that had no influence, the place that was mixed with its, uh, with, with its race, mixed with its religion, where people were living in darkness. There was, there was nothing um, really important in northern Israel. And yet that's where Jesus chose to do his ministry. He was reaching out to people that were in darkness. And we got a glimpse of the humility of our Savior. So that's, that was last week. And then the, one of the very last things we looked at was that Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He's launched this public ministry. It's time to start calling his first disciples to follow him. Who will they be? And as we take a look at who Jesus called to be his first disciples, we also want to be considering, well, what about us? Does Jesus call you to be on his humble crew? Does Jesus call me to be on that humble crew? What are the criteria? Who is Jesus exactly looking for? Would you keep that question in the back of your mind as we look at this scripture? And think about whether Jesus would be inviting you to join his humble crew or not. Some people sitting here are, are, are maybe already thinking that you, you might know that answer. It's like, well, I don't think Jesus would want me because uh, I know my past. I know my present. I know where my thoughts go. I know that horrible sin in my past that when I bring it to mind, I still get a little bit red in my face because I'm so embarrassed. I know the thing I struggle with that I, I know is wrong. I don't want to do it. And I, I keep falling into it. So would Jesus want me on his humble crew? I highly doubt it. Or maybe you're thinking, well, for me to be on Jesus' humble crew, I, I really got to get my act together a lot more than I do now. I need to change some things. Um, I need to line up my life and more, be more like a church person, and then maybe Jesus would want me on his humble crew. My understanding of God's word it's just not to the point where I think Jesus would necessarily want me on his crew. So all these reasons that might be going through our mind where we might think, well, I don't know, maybe not me. Maybe others, but not me. But there might be some people here that are at the opposite extreme, which I'm going to suggest is not better. In fact, it's worse. There might be some people here that say, who would Jesus have on his humble crew? <laughs> me, of course. He would definitely want me on his crew. I mean, I know the Bible backwards and forwards, read it several times, nine times, I've been counting. And uh, I am a church person my whole life long, grew up in the church, still go to church. My parents went to church. I went to a Christian school. If there's anybody Jesus would want on his, on his team, on his crew, yeah, it's definitely me. I pray that's not in your heart, but if there, there's probably a, a little kernel of that in all of us also, that, yeah, I think Jesus would do all right if I was on his crew. There probably is a little bit in me that he finds pretty impressive, that he would want me to be on his team, on his side. So who does Jesus really want? Well, why don't we unpack this by taking a look at, at the first crew Jesus called, and that's going to inform us as to who he wants on his crew today as well. So we're taking a look at Matthew chapter 4. Starting at verse 18, we read this. 
Okay, Jesus is ready to call his first disciples. And it says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, hold on a second. Didn't we just say that Jesus is calling his first crew? He's inviting the first people to follow him. What is he doing walking along the Sea of Galilee? Excuse me, Jesus, I think you're in the wrong place. I think you want to be down in Jerusalem. That's where you're going to find the, the, the high priest, the, the Levites, the, the people who already knew the Old Testament, all the religious people. Go hang around the temple there. You've got a much better shot at finding a good crew. Or I could suggest to you, Jesus, that maybe you go to Herod's temple. Maybe try to hit up the royal family. Get them on your side. Now that would be a win for the kingdom, Jesus. But you're walking along the Sea of Galilee. By the way, uh, Pastor Mike told us this last week. Uh, don't think with, with uh, big homes and lake houses and maybe a, a fishing dock and um, a motorboat parked nearby. Not that kind of sea, not that kind of lake. But think industrial. Fishermen. Smelling smelly fishermen and fish rotting on the seashore and stuff strewn everywhere and industrial. This is where Jesus is going to look for his first crew. Not where you would expect. So, as Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets, and they followed Jesus. Turns out he did find some of his first followers. Walking along the sea, walking along the beach, he catches sight of two people who were devoutly kneeling in the sand, praying toward Jerusalem as they always did three times a day because they were such devout Christian people. Oh wait, that's not, not what it said there. It, they were fishing. <laughs> Throwing nets out into the sea, dragging them back in, going about their everyday work. Jesus, for reasons I must confess, I don't know, says, you too, come follow me. And they did. They dropped everything and they went and they followed Jesus. Well, we're not quite done yet. There's a couple more brothers that need, need to join. Um, going on from there, walks a little bit further down the beach, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed Jesus. Now, there's a detail in Mark's gospel. It's not recorded here, but um, he didn't, they didn't just leave their father in the boat. They also left, it says, the hired men in the boat with their father. Which tells me that this is a different class of fishermen from Peter and Andrew. That these were men that were probably part of a small family business that was successful enough that they could actually have hired men helping them. That wasn't always the case. It was usually just a family operation. But apparently Mr. Zebedee was a pretty good fisherman um, and it built a small business out of it, which is his sons were working with him. Well, well, not anymore. Jesus called them and they left everything and they followed Jesus. Now, what I'd like to do is jump ahead a few chapters to Matthew chapter 9, where Matthew, the author of this biography of Jesus, talks about how Jesus came to call him to be one of his followers. So in Matthew chapter 9, jumping ahead, it says, on, on hearing, uh, um, let's see, 
backing up. There it is. As Jesus went on from there, and, and remember, we jumped ahead a few, few verses. He's not coming from the Sea of Galilee. As Jesus went on from there means what was happening before was that Jesus was in a packed house. He was preaching. He was teaching. And um, uh, he had just healed a man. They lowered him through a hole in the roof, a paralyzed man. Jesus told him his sins were forgiven and made him walk again. And the man walked up, got up and walked out. And it's, it's the very next story. From there, Jesus goes out and starts making a beeline for this man named Matthew. So I imagine Jesus is not alone. The crowds that were in the house surely were following along too. And you also have those four men that Jesus has already called. Um, so it says that he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Those booths were often in public places, sometimes near a bridge or along the road. That's where they would collect their tariffs. Matthew is a tax collector. Which, in our day, we don't love them. You don't, want to get out, you don't want to get a call from the IRS, right? However, in those days, not only were they taking your money for the government, they were taking your money for the Roman government. Jewish people were hired, actually auctioned off the, the right to be able to collect those taxes for the Roman government. So that meant, meant that those those Jewish people gathering those taxes, the tax collectors, were traitors also. That they were supporting their foreign oppressors. And if that wasn't bad enough, standing behind those tax collectors were a couple of Roman soldiers so that when they went door to door to collect the taxes, they could collect whatever they wanted. And they often did. They would collect extra taxes. They would pad their pockets and become very, very rich off the backs of their fellow Jewish people. So they were thieves as well. They collected taxes, they were traitors, they were thieves, and therefore, in Jesus' day, they were the most hated people in society. Bottom of the list, the most hated of the hated, prostitutes, and then, below them, tax collectors. That's how much, every time people would say their name, they'd probably spit a little bit. Uh, just, just the hatred of these tax collectors because of who they were and what they represented. So that is who Jesus is making a beeline for. So I'm imagining Peter and John maybe hang, hanging back, talking to each other. They see Jesus walk out there following Jesus. They see Jesus walking toward this tax collector's booth. And I wonder if Peter says to John, oh, this is going to be good. He's going to lay into that guy. It's Matthew, isn't it? Isn't his name Matthew? He's always there collecting that money from us, taking it from us. And, and he's a traitor and he's a thief. And Jesus is going to just let him have it. And I can't wait to see how Jesus just lays into him. Go, Jesus. And Jesus walks up to him and Jesus says, Matthew, follow me. Peter looks over at John. Isn't that what he said to us? <laughs> yeah, yeah, same words. Did he just make Matthew one of us? There had to have been a little bit of outrage inside of them. If they didn't express it outwardly, they probably felt it inwardly. And I wonder, Peter being so outspoken, if he said or at least thought, Jesus, what are you thinking? The PR on this is going to be horrible. That there is a tax collector among us? This, this is a disaster. How are, you going to, how are you going to become even more popular? How are people going to listen to you when, when he is with us? Gesturing over toward Matthew. This probably wasn't on their radar as Jesus' next step or as the next disciple that Jesus would call. But it gets worse. 
So uh, verse 10 says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, Matthew gives such a compressed account. Um, first he calls, Jesus says, follow me. Doesn't even say he did follow him, but now we're eating dinner at Matthew's house. So obviously he did. Um, they jump to Matthew's house. Matthew is preparing a, a feast, a meal for Jesus. Obviously he honors and respects Jesus. And if that wasn't bad enough, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Now there's not just a tax collector. There are multiple tax collectors all under this one roof eating with Jesus and his disciples. Oh, and other sinners too. There's the tax collectors and sinners. They're not quite as bad, but they're there too. All eating under this one roof. All followers of Jesus. Which is odd, which is why the Pharisees have a question about all of this. Um, so while he's having that dinner, uh, the Pharisees saw this. Were they stalking Jesus? It kind of seemed like they were. Um, trying to catch him in something that he's doing wrong. They would not have been inside the house. That would have made them unclean. Uh, so they're, they're probably just outside of the house or maybe listening from the outside. And did one of Jesus' disciples come out or did they just kind of talk through the window? We're not exactly sure. But they, but they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. Doesn't he realize that when you hang around with people like that, you get a reputation? Doesn't he know that it's hard to soar like an eagle when you're hanging around with a bunch of tur turkeys? Somebody's got to tell Jesus he's making a horrible mistake here. What kind of rabbi are you following anyway? Now, we're not told that they, they tried to answer. Maybe they were trying to find the words. Maybe they didn't know the answer because this is all very new to them. But Jesus hears the question, so Jesus is the one that answers. On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Those Pharisees so good at making sure they did all those prescribed sacrifices, but did they love other people and have mercy on those who needed it? No. Jesus said, that's not what I'm looking for. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. So why is Jesus hanging out with those people? Quite simply because they're the ones that needed it. It's not the healthy that need a doctor. You don't go to the doctor when you're healthy typically, unless it's a routine checkup. But when you're really sick, you do. It's not uh, who needs a lifeguard? <laughs> Somebody that's drown drowning, right? Uh, who needs a fireman? typically just when you have a fire in your house. Who needs a doctor? Typically just sick people. Who needs a savior? Well, people who need saving. People who recognize that they need saving. Those were the people that Jesus came for. Truth is, the Pharisees needed it too. They just didn't recognize it. They thought they were healthy. They thought they were already pretty, pretty good with God. And so Jesus said, okay, that's why I'm not going to you. You don't need what I'm offering. You don't think you need this forgiveness that I give. You don't think you need a savior, so I come to the tax collectors and the sinners. Who are the rest of Jesus' disciples? We, we honestly don't have a ton of information. Five of them, we don't even know what exactly what they did. Um, a couple of them appear, appear to be Jewish nationalists. They so hated the, the, the Roman people, the Roman rule, that they were actively working to try to get the Romans out and to overthrow them. So a couple of, they're called zealots. Those were among Jesus' crew. And the rest, we're not sure. There's probably, um, probably a total of six or seven of them were fishermen uh, in some capacity. Uh, but the rest, we're just not sure. So this, this was Jesus' humble crew. So what can we say about them? 
Let's fill in some blanks. What is true of Jesus' crew? And the first thing that is true of Jesus' crew is this. They are familiar. They're familiar. They're people that you meet each day. They're, they're ordinary, everyday, regular people. They're not the one percenters. They're not of the royal household. They're just normal, everyday people. It's not the high priest. It's not the priests that work in the temple. It's not even the Pharisees. It's the normal, regular, everyday people. They're the people that were familiar Okay, we'll, we'll come back to that in just a minute. What else do we know about these, about these followers of Jesus, about his crew? Second thing that is, we, we know without, beyond a shadow of a doubt is that Jesus' crew, the people that made it up, they were flawed. They were flawed. They were sinners. Matthew, that one's evident. We know what kind of sins he would have been committing. We, we know how he was at the very bottom of society but what about the rest of them? Well, they weren't, they weren't such bad guys, right? Some fishermen, you know, salt of the earth people, no, no problem there, right? Well, as you read through Matthew's gospel and the other gospels, you find out, no, there are kind of issues with all of these guys. Um, when you look at Matthew's gospel, as you read through it in five different places, Jesus addresses them as, oh, you of little faith. People of little faith. And you would think, well, at least by the end. Okay, we could understand maybe a little bit of misunderstanding earlier in Jesus' ministry, but three and a half years later, at the point of where he's about to die, or especially after he's risen from the dead, surely they got it. They had rock-solid faith, and they were fully obedient to Jesus in every way, right? No. These men were flawed. Listen, when Jesus was arrested... The disciples stood by his side and they would not leave. No, that's not it. Uh, they fled, Matthew tells us. All of them. Not one of them st stuck with Jesus. They all left. They all fled. After Jesus rose from the dead. Now they should get it right. It says, later Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. This is the post-resurrection Jesus. This dead man is alive, appears among them, and he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. We saw the risen Lord. Yeah, right. Come on. He, dead people don't rise. His own disciples were saying... Jesus rebukes them and say, how could you not believe? I told you, I taught you, I, I predicted it, I said I would do it. They said they saw me and you still doubted, come on. And then later, there's another story. It says, Jesus himself stood among them, among the disciples, and he said to them, peace be with you, the risen Jesus. They were startled and frightened. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do so many doubts rise in your mind? He could see into their hearts and minds. And as the risen Lord is standing face to face with them, he sees they've got doubts in their minds still. These men were flawed, weren't they? They were sinners. They were far from perfect. They were far from getting it. They were not perfectly obedient. They did not have a rock-solid faith. And yet this was Jesus' humble crew. Then what else can we say about them? Third thing. Pretty simple. <laughs> they followed. For their flaws, and as ordinary as these men were, they followed. They followed and they kept on following. 
There was a time when Jesus taught something that was really challenging and, and actually very offensive to the people. They didn't understand at all what he was getting at. They were so offended that most of the people that had been following Jesus, they just walked off, they left, and they never came back. And, and as people start to dissipate after Jesus said this offensive thing, his disciples are still there. And Jesus talks to them and he, and he says, well, are you guys next? You leaving too? And Peter, speaking on behalf of all the disciples, says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. They kept following. Now, at that point, clearly, did they fully understand? No. Did they have a perfect faith? Far from it. Were they perfectly obedient to Jesus? No, later they would flee. But they followed. And they, they knew, they recognized we don't know it all, but we know this. Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. Who else would we follow? We will follow you. So then what about our fourth point here? What is this last point about Jesus' humble crew? This is where it ties in with you because our, third, our fourth point is simply this. You are invited to his crew too. Probably could have guessed that last one. You are invited to his crew too. To which you might first want to object a little bit and say, but, but, but I'm so ordinary. What do I really have to offer? There's nothing really that special about me. And Jesus smiles and says, exactly. <laughs> You're just what I'm looking for. Now, it's not that there are no Christians. If you happen to be a one percenter or someone of great power and influence, if the president of the United States is sitting here, I don't see him, but um, maybe he's watching online. Um, does that mean that those people are excluded? No. But by and large, when you look at a, Christ a gathering of Christians, the vast majority of them are plain, familiar, ordinary people. Who does Jesus call to be on his crew today? Well, the guy that works down at the paper mill, the nurse at Theta Care, that person that works in the produce department at Walmart, Jesus says, follow me, follow me. The small business owner, kind of like James and John, follow me. See, zealots, uh, maybe the campaign staffer for the Trump campaign wearing a mega hat. Jesus, follow me. The Bernie Sanders supporter with uh, the Feel the Burn t-shirt. You too, come on. To which those guys look at each other. We're on the same, th yeah, follow me. The people that are familiar, everyday, ordinary people, just like you, just like me. Jesus calls and says, join my crew, follow me. And then there's a second thing that you need to know. Who else does Jesus call? Are you part of his crew? There is a criteria. There is a condition that you have to fulfill. If you are not like this, you are not invited to Jesus' team. It disqualifies you automatically if you do not have this one characteristic. And it is this. You absolutely must be a sinner. If you are not a sinner and don't recognize that you are, you are not invited. Jesus said, I came to help the sick, not the healthy. I came to help those who are spiritually struggling, those who know their weaknesses, those who know their sin, so that I can heal them and show them that they are fully and freely forgiven in me. That's the one I came for. So if you say, no, I'm actually, I'm sure God's really impressed with me already. I don't think I really need a savior from what, rescue from what, I'm good. Jesus would say, yeah, not you. But for all who are flawed, for all who are sinners, 
Jesus calls you and says, follow me. But what about that thing I did? Yep, that still doesn't disqualify you. Was that thing a sin? Well, yeah, it was. Good, you're qualified. Not good that you sinned, but you are qualified to follow Jesus because being a sinner is the only qualification you have to have. And Jesus invites you to his humble crew. And what does Jesus call you to do? He calls you to follow. To simply follow. Yeah, well, I don't know. I don't know if I can follow him because I've, I've got all kinds of doubts. I've got a lot of unresolved questions and I'm not sure how to answer those questions. And Jesus says, that's okay. Follow me. Well, my faith isn't rock solid yet, so that's okay. Follow me. Yeah, but I still commit a lot of sins. That's okay. Come on, follow me. I'm often disobedient to God. I don't have my life in order. I really need to get straightened out more. No, no, no. Follow me. Right the way you are, drop everything. Come on. Let's go. Follow me. Why, why does Jesus say that? Why doesn't Jesus say, believe in me? Off the bat. Why isn't that the first thing he says? Why doesn't Jesus say, you, come on. Obey me. Understand me perfectly. No, the first thing he says is follow me. And that's the invitation just to follow. The disciples didn't have a perfect faith and maybe no faith. They didn't understand at first. They had little understanding. They didn't obey. And Jesus said, follow. And he invites you to follow too. Because the, what, what, what Jesus is all about is not coercion or force. He doesn't come at you with thunderbolts and terror and, and indisputable miracles that would have you shaking in your boots. No, he comes to you with a still small voice and this gentle invitation to come and follow him. Because God wants a relationship with you that is based on love, not based on force. If you are married or have ever had a significant other, how is it that that relationship formed? Wasn't it by following each other around for a bit called dating? Wasn't it that you got to know each other? You communicated with each other? You looked at what you thought about various views and you came to know in various circumstances how that person treats other people, how they talk in that circumstance? And over time, you got to know each other better and you started to trust each other a bit more. And over time, a love developed to the point that you even wanted to get married. And married, you serve one another. That's how love forms. What kind of relationship does Jesus want with you? Same kind. One that's based on love. Well, how are you going to come to love Jesus? First, you have to follow Get to know him. Who, what is Jesus all about? What does he say? What does he teach? How does he treat people in various circumstances? What about when his enemies attack him? What does he do when that happens? What does he do when somebody in need comes and approaches him? What does he do when he's faced with the ultimate choice of saving his own life or giving it as a sacrifice for the sin of the world? What's he going to do in that circumstance? Well, you know the answer. As you follow Jesus and get to know him, you start to love him. And as you start to love him, you trust him more and more and more. And as you love him and trust him, then the obedience starts to follow and you want to serve him because you know his love for you and his unconditional love that forgives all your sins. As you follow Jesus, you see more and more that causes you to love him. 
So especially this time of year, uh, a season of the year in, in church world, we call it Lent, where we follow Jesus all the way to the cross and then Easter Sunday morning to the empty tomb. And as we follow Jesus and observe what he teaches, what he says, what he does, his unconditional love that would take him all the way to the cross, where he would take the blame for every last one of your sins, put it on his own shoulders, bleed and die instead of you. Wow. That's love. I think maybe I love him too. <laughs> right? When you see that kind of love, it produces love in you as well. You love him back, which leads you to trust, which leads you to obey. And when you follow him all the way to the cross and then to the empty tomb, there you have your guarantee. Jesus is who he said he was. I've got the proof. Jesus did what he said he would do. My sins are forgiven. God accepts me and forgives me and loves me and adores me. It is most certainly true. And all those other things start to follow, like obedience and trust and all the rest. Jesus invites you to follow him. So there was a couple that I worked with back in my church, back in Omaha. Um, I, I moved here um, about three and a half years ago. Uh, I was in Omaha, Nebraska before that. And I was in my church one day when this couple showed up. I'll call them Greg and Sharon to protect their identity. But Greg and Sharon show up. They're not members of my church. And they say, we'd like to meet with, one of the, with, with the pastor. I, Come on into my office. So they sit down and they say, yeah, um, Sharon says, I'm going to be filing for a divorce this week. But I thought maybe it'd be good that we just talk to a pastor first. You see, Greg is a full-blown alcoholic. And he uh, has multiple DUIs, just got one recently. His license was taken away. He keeps doing this and he won't stop. And he's destroying our family. He's destroying his reputation. They're in their, their upper 50s. They had been together for a while. Uh, and um, he, he's, he's going to hurt somebody. He's going to hurt himself. I can't do this anymore. We're going to be getting a divorce. And I talked with Greg and Sharon and, and we talked and we talked multiple times over multiple weeks. And I encourage them, hey, why don't you start coming to church? Um, why don't you start following Jesus? You don't know him very well, but, but get to know him, follow him, see what he's like, see what he does. And maybe you could come to our starting point class, which Bible information class, and, and you could get to know Jesus a little bit better there also and just follow and listen and learn. And they did, to my surprise. And as we kept meeting and as we kept talking and as they kept learning and as they kept following, something happened and they started to change. And Greg decided that drinking wasn't so great after all. And he stopped drinking and he started going to AA meetings almost every day, whatever he needed to get through the day. And, and he stopped drunk driving and he voluntarily installed a breathalyzer in his car that wouldn't allow it to start if he had been drinking. And Sharon is seeing this change in Greg and she starts to realize that if Jesus could forgive me, I think I could probably forgive my husband. And over the, the weeks and months, their relationship began to heal. They came back together. They stopped talking about divorce. There were bumps and setbacks along the way. But Greg and Sharon stayed together. They weren't there on day one, but as they followed Jesus, it changed them. I went back to Omaha in October for my son's wedding, and we went to church there on the Sunday morning, and I was so happy to see Greg and Sharon right there in church, really committed because they were like more than halfway up even. <laughs> 
And I was happy to find out that, that uh, Greg was volunteering in our Sunday school program there and, and was teaching children. And that Sharon was a volunteer church secretary serving multiple hours every week, actively involved in the congregation. All of this started by following Jesus. So I don't know where you are with your, your, your faith life, where you would consider yourself, whether somebody just drug you to church today uh, because you're, you're their boyfriend or girlfriend, or, or you just happened to walk in off the street, you just wanted, thought you'd check things out, or if you're a lifelong Christian, wherever you are in your walk of faith, could we just, just strip this down to its most simple and essential thing? What does it mean to be a Christian? It just means follow Jesus. Start following if you ever, never have. Keep following if you have. Get to know him better and see his love and rejoice in who Jesus is and all that he did for you through his perfect life, through his death on the cross, guaranteed by his resurrection. You're going to love what you see as you follow Jesus. And as you do, it's going to change you. And the trust and obedience and the changed life follows. We're a church, our motto is, we're a church that, that helps you plant Jesus' roots that produce the Spirit's fruits. We're a church that helps and encourages you to follow Jesus closely. That's what Jesus' roots are. Because we know that the, the result of that are these fruits of the Spirit, this changed life that follows now and an eternal life that's out of this world. Follow Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, <clears throat> this message probably lands in a lot of different places for a lot of different people. Some people feel unworthy. They feel like they need to straighten up first, that there are some things they have to change in their life. They'd never step, step foot in a, foot in, in a church because, because lightning might strike. Uh, Lord, that's just not true. Help us to remember who you were originally called, even a tax collector. Lord, you call us today too. Not to have a perfect faith immediately. Not to be fully obedient at the start. But simply to follow and learn and observe and to watch and to ask critical questions and to see Jesus and ultimately to fall in love with him. So Lord, help us to do just that. Through this message today, fill us with your spirit and lead us and cause us to follow. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.